This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, our guest today, Menos uh, Kafatos. He is a PhD in uh, physics from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, very credentialed physicist. Uh, he's been a professor at Chapman University and um, and uh, holds the Fletcher Jones Endowed Professor of Computational Physics there and is director of the Center of Excellence of Earth Systems Modeling and Observations and uh, has written and spoken uh, extensively on science and spirituality. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Menas, uh, we want to talk about your uh, new book that you co-authored with uh, Deepak Chopra and has uh, arrived on the New York Times best-selling book. Congratulations on that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, and, Philip. And, um, uh, but first, let's fill our uh, audience in a little bit um, on who you are and what your background is. Um, you've been straddling this world, the world of science and the world of uh, spirituality, sort of on both cutting edge of each for a long time. Uh, what came first for you, the science or the spirituality? Uh, well, that's a good question, Phil. Uh, Philip. Um, I would say um, maybe spirituality came first, um, but closely behind that was science. I, and I will explain ever since I was very young. I was actually a choir boy in the Orthodox Church in Greece way back when I was a young young kid. And uh, at the same time, because uh, the skies over there um, are, even now, they're magnificent in terms of when you're away from the city lights, I could see the Milky Way galaxy in the summer and the center of the Milky Way galaxy towards the constellation Sagittarius. So I got... Um, that was, uh, if you like, a double thing, maybe uh, spiritual in one sense, because you, you see the vastness of the cosmos. But also I was wondering, well, what, is, what is the galaxy? What, is, what are all the stars? And then I, I got um, a telescope that my brother actually sent me from the United States. And I could um, see the planets. And uh, so at that point, I decided to become an astrophysicist. And that was uh, fairly, fairly young, fairly young age. And when you moved, uh, when you were at uh, MIT, highly intellectual place, not generally a place you think of, of uh, uh, spirituality, uh, although I, I'm sure many would argue with me in regard to that, but for the common observer, they might think that. Uh, were your ideas and thoughts connecting spirituality to science beginning then? And if they were, uh, how receptive were the uh, faculty and students there to your thinking? Well, I was uh, I was a student myself. I was a graduate student, I, and I was actually at um, before that I did my undergraduate at Cornell University, which is also mm -hmm. a, a good university, of course, and Ivy League and all of that. So then after that, I went to PhD, got my PhD at MIT, and um, uh, hooked up with my advisor, uh, actually well-known physicist by the name of Philip Morrison, mm -hmm. and. Um, who is an astrophysicist, who was an astrophysicist and worked on the Manhattan Project. And um, um, to make a long story short, then I got deeper and deeper into science. And to be honest with you, at that point, um, 
particularly in the graduate school. Uh, you have your hands um, tied up or filled up, if you like, uh, with work um, <clears throat> um, to finish the thesis and to do the research. So uh, I was very focused on that, and mm -hmm. I, I, I did a good thesis and um, eventually got a job um, teaching. So um, not much in graduate school, but once I got into into teaching, at George Mason University, which was my first appointment, um, we were exploring um, the, um, and this was by now it was 1990, uh, early 90s, uh, I was beginning now to explore um, ideas in the conscious universe, which uh, we wrote with uh, Robert Nadeau in the early 90s, in, actually 1990, 91, came out. And um, at that point, I decided to, as we were doing the um, classes on, mm -hmm. uh, which was more like philosophy, a philosophy of physics and class that had a lot of physics, but also had a lot of philosophy. We got into spirituality and we got at some point to actually um, hold uh, meditation um, sessions in class. Uh, mm. And I would tell the students, you know, let's just close our eyes. And uh, I would guide them a little bit into meditation. And um, they got a lot out of it. They thought that it was uh, very, very soothing. And uh, um, because it was an, this was an evening class, and a lot of the students were working uh, people. And so they would come from work. They would be exhausted or tired. So it was good to just sit down uh, 10 or 15 minutes and do that. Uh, so that's where that's where uh, we started going more and more into spirituality. Mm -hmm. And uh, then mm -hmm. by uh, the early 2000s or so, um, the la my last um, decade or so at George Mason, I got a lot into, um, I would say, philosophy of uh, quantum mechanics, philosophy of science. And uh, then in the last uh, several years, mm -hmm. uh, I'm giving talks on spirituality and basically uh, saying that uh, the two worlds of science and spirituality are, are not separate, but they are, in fact, I believe it, they're one world, one universe, one world. Mm -hmm. and, and where did that insight <laughs> uh, come to you, Menas? Um, did, you grew up Greek Orthodox and... Uh, you, your heritage is, has this great uh, uh, cosmology and stargazing, and uh, then you were at Cornell, where you know Carl Sagan had been, and um, and so you have that in your background. But did you remain within the fold of uh, Greek Orthodoxy, or did your oh, personal spirituality take other directions? Well, I would say it took other other. Um other directions because, um, uh, to be honest with you, um, I actually, I, to add to what I was saying before, um, there was, um, early on, I was interested in the ancient Greek philosophers, mm. um, Socrates and Plato. And, uh, I would say in the last five years, I've gotten, getting back very deeply into Greek philosophy, but also in the eighties, I got, uh, involved a lot with uh, 
the Hindu systems, Hindu systems, particularly Advaita Vedanta, mm -hmm. non-dual Vedanta, and Kashmir Shaivism, mm -hmm. and uh, got very deep into both. And I would say that now um, I actually do teach um, in workshops uh, Kashmir Shaivism. Ah, mm. uh, uh I'm trying to understand or conceptualize the link between uh, science and and spirituality myself. I mean, uh, science, as I understand it, and I'm not a scientist, but is a, a procedure for gaining knowledge. There's a hypothesis. You try to prove that wrong, and you, you test it on and on like that. So it's a way of observation and, and, and proving uh, a particular statement is true or not true. Uh, spirituality is defined by many people in many ways. It, uh, I, I think your co-author Deepak Chopra talks of it as in terms of internal or intuitive exploration. Uh, how would you define science and how would you define spirituality and where's the link uh, uh, between those two? Yes, in fact, a uh, couple of years ago I gave um, a talk, I think it was at uh, Esterlin, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I, I said that um, uh, the missing link, if you like, between science mm -hmm. and spirituality is consciousness. Mm. So I'm starting from there. I say, okay, is consciousness a central part of um, science? Absolutely, yes. Um, and we can go a little bit more in details about that. Uh, is consciousness um, a part or important in spirituality? And the answer is absolutely yes. So right there, you have the big link. And in fact, in the end, as we say in the book, uh, You Are the Universe with Deepak Chopra, it really is uh, conscious awareness, uh, universal awareness, that is the foundation of everything. And that is the true meaning of the book, You Are the Universe. Mm -hmm. That we are that uh, unbound, uh, infinite, um, if you like, uh, without uh, beginning or end, uh, eternal conscious awareness. That's our true nature, and that is that is really the universe. And in science, this comes through because of the so-called role of the observer in quantum mechanics. So mm -hmm. I would say in quantum mechanics, what we're saying is much more natural than in Newtonian or classical physics. And so we do have now an evolution of science more towards the direction we are describing in the book. But scientists, a lot, a lot of scientists are still resisting because they say, well, the, there is the universe is external. It's out there. And we're saying, well, but all the experiences of the universe are internal. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. therefore, you have what we call complementarity between the external and the internal. They're all part of our own awareness. So that's, that's in summary, more or less, what I would say the links are. Yeah. Menas, uh, it struck me when I saw the title of the book, You Are the Universe, um, that it resonates with Tatvam uh, Asi in, uh, right. in the, the, the great Mahavakya of the Upanishads, which means thou art that. Was that a, a sort of conscious choice to resonate with that? Um, I would say yes. Um, of course, you could have just called the book uh, "You Are That." Yes, <laughs> but <laughs> and just be 
totally open about it. Uh, on the other hand, I would say because the book is really directed towards uh, a Western uh, audience and towards uh, an audience that uh, respects science and uh, we respect science, that the year of the universe is a little bit more perhaps uh, familiar, yeah. although at first it puts you off. Uh, I mean, it may put off some people say, well, mm -hmm. what do you mean with the universe? You're everything. Well, uh, you could have uh, said you are God and really made people uh, great. Well, we, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, I mean, since you brought the, you brought <laughs> the G word, uh, we, we avoided the G word as much as we could. Sure. Or as much, because precisely what you just said, it just yeah. makes people, uh, it will make some people very, very happy. It will make some people very, very unhappy. Yes. And that is not the point. The point of the book is to say, open the door and say, okay, this is what science says. These are the limits of science. And in, in each chapter of the book, we go methodically and say why the current paradigm in science does not explain uh, the outstanding problems uh, of science. Right. Uh, so was, we have to evolve science. We have to evolve science. That's right. all. Of, that's it, all. It of. was it was a wise choice of titles. Right, right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Manus, I'm curious. Uh, you use two terms. You use the term consciousness, and you use the term conscious awareness. Uh, uh, the, by conscious awareness, do you mean uh, consciousness aware of something, and and the term consciousness uh, awareness uh, devoid of content or object of awareness? Because uh, or do you mean them? Could you use them interchangeably? Consciousness and conscious awareness. Oh, very good, Dennis. This is very, uh, very uh, astute question and observation. Um, and sometimes uh, we may flip one to the other. Uh, the generally, uh, the general term that uh, a lot of people use when you know they go into philosophy and uh, and spirituality is consciousness. However, uh, consciousness uh, is a Western word that uh, comes, from, comes from conscientio, okay? So it really means to, to know something else, to know or to observe or to know or to be conscious of something, all right? Mm -hmm. Whereas that's why I use the term, a better term perhaps is conscious awareness with capital A. Uh, and that, as you correctly pointed out, includes the being conscious of objects as well as being conscious of one's own subjective self. Mm. And, uh, and, and in Sanskrit, there are many different, mm -hmm. there's about diff 20 different terms for um, consciousness, quote unquote, uh, in Sanskrit. Uh, in English, unfortunately, you only really have uh, only a couple. And we believe that awareness is probably a little bit more to the point. Ah, that's interesting. So you think people, uh, particularly scientists, uh, are more likely to understand what you're uh, referring to with the language if you use awareness than consciousness? I, I find, to be honest with you, that when we use the term awareness, people are actually a little bit more open to say, oh, yeah, I get it. I know what you're talking about. Right. But when we, when we talk about consciousness, then say, well, consciousness of what? Um, consciousness uh, of brain, right, right, I'm right. talking about neurons, and, and, and you know, it goes on and on and on and on. So, okay, all right. <laughs> on the other right. hand, consciousness is a more popular term. So we are, mm -hmm. I think we're in transition. That's why, you, as you notice, 
then is I'm going, we're going from mm -hmm. consciousness to conscious awareness, and I think that's probably a, a better term to yeah. explain. All right, to, to follow up on that, Venus, uh, the gentleman you wrote the book with, uh, who we all know, Deepak Chopra, actually was a guest on the show recently. Uh, uh, you know, and again, the title for our listeners, You Are the Universe, best-selling book. Um, when you talk, when he spoke about consciousness, he, he mentioned that he, his belief was that, and he said it with great uh, authority, consciousness is, uh, is, exists separate from the brain, from brain activity. And I know you're not, not a neurophysiologist, you're, you're, you're a quantum physicist, but obviously uh, you've, it's probably something you've given thought to. Uh, I don't doubt that that's the case, but I haven't seen any evidence, any scientific proof uh, uh, or proof from uh, any uh, spiritual proof that, that that is the case. Do you believe that consciousness exists separate from brain physiology? And if so, why do you uh, believe that? Okay, so I have to uh, take a step back. Okay. Um, I would say um, that the brain itself comes out as an experience from awareness, conscious awareness, okay? So the physical is itself um, part of awareness. Okay. So I, I don't like to uh, add duality. The, it, it is um, for sure our world is full, full of dualities and I don't need to, <laughs> to go too much into that. We see them mm -hmm. around us all the time. So my message to the world is let's bring together the understanding that these polarities or opposing forces that we see are just a natural part of wholeness. And that is why complementarity really uh, is so crucial because it brings together the opposites into an undivided wholeness. So having said that, um, I would say that the brain and the mind, okay, let's put it, the brain and the mind, specifically the human mind, are closely tied together. We know that when there are brain disorders, when some of the hardware breaks down, then the software doesn't work. We know mm -hmm. that from mm -hmm. computers, we also know from the brain, right? I mean, if you start right. having some plaques in the brain, et cetera, et cetera, in, in um, you know, in the in neuroscience now tells us that you, might develop something like um, Alzheimer's, um, God forbid, or or some other neuronal diseases. So we know that, as the ancient Greeks said, um, healthy mind in a healthy body. Okay, if you have a very unhealthy body and miserable because of pain or whatnot, well, you know your mind is not going to be in very good shape. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, we also now know the power of the mind. Okay. So it's always a constant dance between the two. I wouldn't say it's one or the other, but having said all of that, going back to what Deepak was saying, I would agree with him that there are states of awareness outside of the physical body. So if I could just follow up, as a scientist, is there any evidence of that or is that just a belief? Oh, absolutely, there is a, there's evidence. I would say every night when we close our eyes, what happens? Every, you know, you don't, we don't need to prove We dream, right? Right. Well, I mean, there's a whole um, psychotherapy and psychology, you know, uh, about dreams. Dreams are not external. They're internal. And actually, we're dreaming with our eyes closed. 
And uh, we don't really have much uh, sensory input when we're dreaming. If there is too much sensory input, like a, a loud noise, then I wake up, right? But when we're asleep, we see an internal movie, so to speak, which are the dreams. Now, how is that possible? Where, where, where our eyes are closed. And nevertheless, we see very clearly, as you probably both know, sometimes our dreams are very lucid. So I, we don't have to prove to go very far. Our own existence every night tells us that there are these alternate states uh, which are outside the physical. Right, right so but physical. if I could just follow up on this, and that is that dream is still dependent upon the activity of the uh, brain, uh, of brain activity. Uh, and, and I think the point Deepak was making was that even after a person dies, uh, awareness will still exist because it's not dependent upon the brain. And, and I don't doubt that to be the case. I don't know one way or the other. I'm agnostic, uh, but, but uh, it, yeah. I don't see how there can be proof of that. Well, okay, so I was, I was, I was going one step at a time. I was okay. going through the, the dream state first just to prepare everybody or the audience um, to say, okay, well, we are all aware of dreams. So they're not really uh, dreams with open eyes, although some people dream with open eyes, but whatever. Okay, now going to the next point that you're bringing up, in deep sleep, we don't have dreams, right? right. We, we just, it's just dark and we don't remember anything except to remember, oh my goodness, I had a very nice sleep. And in fact, it is the uh, remless, if you like, or dreamless uh, state which really is most important at night so now the next the next phase is what you just said about uh, well what about beyond totally beyond the body beyond let's say uh when somebody a person dies all i can say on that is and this has to be a personal experience uh if you happen to be near a dying person with a dear person and has uh, a good life, notice how that person passes on from this world mm. compared to somebody who has um, not a very good life or is tormented. Right there, you're going to see some differences. Is that scientific? Absolutely. I mean, we see that. We can even maybe uh, hook up the, uh, the brain and all of that, but you don't want to be invested when somebody is passing away. Um, and then when a person passes away, there are all these countless, I mean, you hear them all the time, um, ways the loved ones communicate. Somebody who is agnostic may say, well, you know, it's just um, wishful thinking because you're missing your parents and you're thinking you are, uh, you're dreaming of them and you see them. But it's so prevalent and repeatable that at some point, I say, well, wait a second. Why do we believe something that is external is sitting on the table and it's inert and we call it a laboratory? And we don't believe the inner laboratory, which is us. After all, we are a physical body, but we're not just a physical body because we have a mind and we have imagination and all of that. Why do we just believe a limited scope that our sensor, sensory input is giving us that we call the external object, and we call that science. And and I would say it's so-called soft science. You know, soft science, anything that has to do with psychotherapy, psychology, brain science, um, and last but not least, biology itself, it's not quite like physics. And today, in fact, we 
even know that physics itself is not solid. <laughs> it's quantum. <laughs> right, right. Um, Maynas, from a historical point of view, um, this attempt to link science and uh, particularly the, the uh, spirituality that comes to us from the East um, has been going on for some time. And, and 40 years ago or more now, uh, Fritjof Kapra wrote The Tao of Physics. And that, yes. that became a phenomenon. And of course, you know, he was uh, embraced uh, by the what was then called the New Age movement and spiritual people, but also attacked by physicists and, and other scientists for being a little soft or taking liberties with quantum mechanics and so forth. And now uh, it's been 40 years. Right. And uh, Deepak, your, your co-author, has also been similarly attacked over the last few decades for you know, uh, taking liberties or what people have said were liberties. Mm -hmm. And now you come along and write this uh, book with him, and you have all the credentials of a physicist, unlike uh, Deepak. Um, but um, much time has passed. Had, we now have thousands of studies on meditation, for example, that didn't exist when Kapper wrote his book. There's Correct. been advances in quantum physics, no doubt. So how is it different now, and how is the reception to your work as compared to in the past? Uh, that's a, also a very good question, Philip. Um, well, first of all, I don't worry about people's reactions, to be honest with you. I mean, it sounds <laughs> cold, but, you know, whatever you say, even, you know, we're sitting here in sunny Southern California. Uh, if I were to say... Uh, Today, it's really nice and warm and sunny. Somebody would disagree, okay? So <laughs> people always disagree. Okay, so are we going to keep everybody happy? Absolutely not. There's no way. People uh, have their own trips. They, they agree, they disagree, they get angry for whatever reason. I'm not worried about other people's trips, to be honest with you. There's so many trips going on in the world. I, you know, I'm just not going to. And notice what's going on in the media. Somebody says something and everybody jumps on him. You can't keep anybody, everybody happy, you know. I, so we're we're attacking politicians, but poor politicians, they, they have no way of ever being uh, right 100% and making everybody happy because somebody's going to be unhappy. Okay, right. having said having said that, um, I think there's a difference now compared to when Capra came out. Uh, Capra was ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. And it was quite, to be honest with you, it was quite really... Um, um, brave on his part, if I can use a word, to come out and say the things that he said. He had that book had a lot of influence on me. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. I read it. I said, "Oh my God!" And that actually was part of my sort of awakening, so to speak, that mm -hmm. there is another world that uh, is not just a strict um, linear science that that I was um, studying. Mm -hmm. uh, today, it's a little bit more open because. Uh, um, we have a lot more knowledge of, you know, about this fusion. There's a lot of fusion going on between Eastern and Western, between uh, uh, social sciences and natural sciences. There's a lot of dialogues. The universities are becoming much more interdisciplinary, uh, much more than they used to be. So the whole atmosphere um, is such that probably um, Fritjof's uh, message would have been uh, better received 
today. On the other hand, uh -huh. what he did 40 years ago is prepare the ground what's 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 going on now. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Manos, I'm curious, how did uh, you and uh, uh, Deepak Chopra hook up to write a book? Well, it was uh, it was a development of a friendship. Um, we met back in I think it was 2009. Uh, I took one of his courses down in uh, La Costa in um, near San Diego, mm -hmm. in uh, near La Jolla. So we met, and uh, I I gave him my book, You're the Universe. He read it and he said, oh, oh my God, this is an amazing book. So <laughs> we started talking and. Um, we gave some workshops together. In fact, our first workshop together was, in fact, to a group of psychoanalysts and psychotherapists, mm -hmm. uh, psychologists in New York City. And then we started writing articles together. And we wrote blogs together for several years. And at some point, we said, well, we have a lot of these blogs. We have written a lot of material. Why don't we just do a book? <laughs> right. You know, um, because the book is really, I mean, blogs are great. Uh, we do them all the time. But you don't make a mark uh, unless you have a book that people read and they take with them and et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Uh, speaking of the book, um, I'm looking at the table of contents now. It's a, it's a two-part book. And yes. part one, uh, the, the title of part one is The Ultimate Mysteries. And uh, there's a list of, I don't know, five, 10 or 12 uh uh, chapters in question form, and you're really uh, taking on the big ones. Um, and we don't have time, obviously, to to get your sort of thumbnail take on on all these questions. But let's start at the beginning. The first one is, what came before the Big Bang? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so How this is a a question that people always ask, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, we're actually putting those uh, chapters. Each chapter it tackles a major scientific uh, issue, but we put it in, as you said, in question mark and in uh, uh, terms that any person uh, will understand the question. And in fact, probably um, most people ask those questions themselves. So indeed, if there was a big bang at the beginning of the universe, the first question that comes to mind is, well, what was before? Mm -hmm the Big Bang, um, there was a beginning. And when you say in the beginning was whatever, the universe, okay, what was before the beginning? So we're saying that before the beginning was uh, what is uh, there all the time. <laughs> uh, what is outside space and time? And, uh, and that is the beginning is just a particular cycle of time, if you like, uh, that we call our, our current universe. Uh, but uh, reality does not start with the beginning and does not end with the beginning. Reality with capital R. Mm. And by the way, when we say reality, we really mean conscious awareness in the end. That's mm -hmm. what we end up going through. We could say another title for this book could be reality is conscious awareness. And that would be perfectly okay as you're the universe, but it will not be sketchy, right? <laughs> it will look too intellectual. No, so, no, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Minas, I have one last question for you. Right. And you think, uh, looking into the future, do you think uh, science as it is utilized, as, as it is practiced now, uh, will become obsolete and, and science will take a new direction or become something uh, slightly different uh, in the future? Uh, I would not say that science will become obsolete because I am a scientist myself and I don't like to become obsolete tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, science, by the way, and most people um, 
including, I, I would say, and this is actually what we discussed in the book with uh, Nadal in the Conscious Universe, most people, most scientists don't understand or don't care uh, what we say, what Deepak many of, uh, very often says, shut up and calculate. But most scientists don't really care about the foundations of, of the scientific field. They say, well, that's just the way it is. But actually, it's not. Every, every scientific statement is based on certain assumptions or certain observe, observational data that you collect, et cetera, et cetera. That's always the case. So having said that, um, I wouldn't say that science will become obsolete. I would say that the science of uh, separation, the science of the of so-called objective reality that not even Newton, by the way, because Newton was not a Newtonian, as, as sometimes <laughs> I say. Um, but the, primarily the uh, age of enlightenment and, um, and the, during the French Revolution that basically you have an external universe, mathematical universe, and that's all you need to know. The other one has come to an end and came, uh, came down in big crash starting in December 1900 with the publication by Max Planck of a famous paper of his. It was the first 25 or 30 years of the 20th century that did away with that classical science. So mm -hmm. what we're saying today, we're saying that science is obsolete. That one that that Planck and Heisenberg and Bohr and even Einstein uh, overthrew, that is gone. But now we need to bring in, uh, as a natural extension of quantum mechanics, the role of the observer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Phil, any final? Do, yeah, uh, I would. I would. Yeah, we have to go. So I would ask Maynas uh, what final words he'd like to leave with our audience, uh, other than please read "You Are the Universe." Uh, <laughs> but you could leave it, those too. Which, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll we'll add that. <laughs> but in addition to that, anybody interested in this uh, cross section of spirituality and science, what would you? Uh, how would you guide them? I would say that rather than seeing the two science spirituality as opposites and separated, actually, I think we make a good case in the book that based on actually common sense and common experience, it really comes down to that, that what we're saying is probably correct. I think we are, we are pretty sure it is correct. But I never say that to the audience. I say, well, Check it out yourself, you know, check, check out some of these things we're saying, you know, uh, and see if indeed they match your experience. Mm. If they do match, go on. So I always uh, advise my readers or my students to follow your own reason, follow your own mind, <laughs> because it is such a wonderful tool. However, don't take your mind as everything that there is either. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you're encouraging them to be their own scientists in a sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Meta, thank, thank you, you so very much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Okay. Take good care. Keep up the good work.